Welcome to Students in Charge. The students of Corbin Health and Rehab Group, or Charge Therapy, are here to bring you the latest research in the field of occupational therapy. Combining evidence-based practice with a fresh student perspective, they aim to promote best practice and competency within the field. Hope you're fully charged, because it's time for the Students in Charge. Welcome back to Students in Charge. As you may know, Charge Therapy is a telehealth occupational therapy company that specializes in hand, upper extremity, ergonomics, and home modifications. In this podcast, we aim to bring you insights into the field of occupational therapy and other inter- interdisciplinary professions. My name is Grace, and I am here with Charge partners, Brielle and Christina. Today, we will be talking to Monique Chabot, who is an occupational therapist therapist who specializes in geriatrics, living in place, and design. Hi, Monique. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Grace. It's great to be with you today. So to start off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming an occupational therapist? Uh, Sure. So it's um, a funny story, I guess, in that I don't do really anything remotely close to what got me into OT in the first place. Um, But I was in a club called Best Buddies when I was in high school, which is a, a, actually an international group, but they would pair a student with intellectual disabilities with someone without one um, to have like one-on-one friendships. And I had never really met anyone with intellectual disability before up until that point, really anyone with any disabilities until high school. But for some reason, I just had this inexplicable, like I just had to join this club. I just had to be a part of it. I really, to this day, don't know why I felt that draw. Um, and so I joined the club. I was in it for four years, just fell in love with my buddies, um, two of whom I still talk to to this day. Um, we've been friends for, I guess, decades now. Um, I spent hours and hours and hours, uh, every second I could, volunteering in the life skills classrooms and just really uh, felt like this was where I needed to be. Uh, and so I remember my senior year of high school, I was working in the classroom with um, the students who had severe cerebral palsy. And there was a lady who kept coming in. Her name was Ms. Joyce, I remember. And she would do assistive tech. And I know what it is now, but they had all the gadgets and all the buttons and the switches. And it was just so cool. And um, all my friends could actually participate in the activities. And I remember saying to the teachers, I wanna, I wanna do this. This is what I wanna do. And I don't know if it was because they couldn't tell me who she was, if I didn't really make it clear what I wanted to do, or if they had an ulterior motive, quite frankly, and wanted me to go into special education. Um, They told me, become a special education teacher. If you're lucky, you can have a classroom just like this. Like, awesome. So I actually went to University of North Texas to be a special education teacher. Uh, I spent two and a half years, actually, in special education training and realized very quickly that what education was teaching me to do was not really what I was worried about for my friends. I think reading and writing and arithmetic was very important, but I kept saying, what happens when they graduate? What's going to happen to them then? How are they going to have a living? What are they going to do with their lives? And like, now that I say that as an OT, like I had OT written all over me at the time, right? Only I didn't know that OT existed. And so after my first year, um, I'd come back and I did a student teaching internship and I got to go into the special ed classrooms. I got to hang out in the assistive tech classroom doing what Ms. Joyce, Joyce was there. Um, we were doing switch access and communication devices for all the students with cerebral palsy or other kinds of communication challenges in the district. And that's when I started piecing together who Ms. Joyce was, that she was an occupational therapist. Um, 
that this was actually, while it was a huge part of special education in the schools to do what Miss Joyce did, it wasn't necessarily special education. Um, but I thought, you know what, like maybe I will, um, you know, but they told me I should be a special education teacher. I, I know I'd be good at this. I'm gonna keep going on my path because I'm also a little stubborn. But it was the day that um, one of my friends who I'd known since freshman year, um, and every day since freshman year, I'd go in and I would say good morning to her and ask her if she was doing all right, because she could look up to say yes. And she would look, give me a big old smile, look up, and we'd carry on in our day. And everyone knew our routine, because I mean, it's been my, had been my routine for like five years at that point with her, doing it in the summer too, because like, there she was, and it was our routine. And one day she was in there early and hooked up to her computer, hooked up to her device. Her mom was in the background, which I thought was kind of weird. It's like, okay. Um, and what we ended up, um, what they had done was they had hooked her up so that when I came in and said that, she would actually be able to hit her button and say, good morning, Monique, I'm doing well, how are you? And like, there wasn't a dry eye in the entire classroom at that point. We were all crying. She was crying, I was crying, we were all crying. Um, and then that's the day I went home and I Googled really what occupational therapy was and went, oh my God, this is, this is it. Like, this is what I've been worried about this entire time. What's gonna happen to my friends when they get older? Um, and so I, I went into OT school thinking I was going to do assistive tech. In high school, I figured out real fast that you, um, when you go to school-based practice, you deal with the little, little ones, which I even knew back then wasn't my thing. It never has been. It never will be probably. It's just not, not who I am. It's not how I use myself therapeutically. And it was through field work that I discovered um, a love of older. I always loved older adults. I thought about becoming a geriatrician, actually, but um, really loved working with them as an OT and then it was within, I guess, my first couple of years of practice out in the field where I was working in people's homes that I became very passionate and opinionated about design and the environment. So I guess when I do the design, I still, I've like ventured back into assistive tech. I've ventured really into like looking at how we build homes. I am the daughter of an engineer. So I think there's a little bit of that in me, um, the fact that I've been making stuff my entire life. And so I think when I see where how my career has taken me, it's, it's sort of encompassed everything that I am and have always been into like a package that I didn't really ever see coming. But if you talk to my former professors, they would tell you that they saw it a mile away. I just never saw it this entire time. So a very long story of, of how I got into OT, um, but definitely not the path that I expected that I would have taken when I joined to go to school. That's a, a really amazing journey. Thank you so much for for sharing. It's so cool that you went in initially thinking that special education was something that you wanted to like specialize in. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you truly like you found what you're passionate about, which was OT. So that's so cool. Uh, and now you're like working and you're also a PhD student as well. So how do you balance? How do you balance that? How do you balance like working and also being a PhD student? Oh my gosh. Because um, yeah, I work full-time as faculty. So I guess I did come back around to my teaching roots on some level, which is just kind of funny now that I think about it. Yeah, so I work full-time. I still work a little bit clinically because I've got some grants that are finishing up and that I fully intend on like maybe stepping slightly back from. I say slightly because I know I'm not going to really do it um, until I get past some of my more coursework. And then, yeah, it's a full course load. Um, Pretty sure a lot of people have looked at me and said, why? And all I can say is I'm a, I'm a machicist. Um, and they just start laughing because they know me. Um, balancing it is not easy. I'm not going to lie. And I, 
I think this week, the first two weeks were pretty good. And then this is week three of the semester. And I will admit that this week it's catching up to me slightly. And the fact that allergies are kicking in too just doesn't really help because you know when, when you're not feeling well, it just takes you out um, all around. But I definitely had a moment yesterday where I was talking to my husband who also has a PhD and his comment was, well, if this is what's happening, it means you're doing it right. I'm like, that, that's not comforting, but thanks, hon. Um, I think part of it is a, a really structured routine. I, I thrive on that. I need to know where I'm supposed to be every any given point in the day. Um, otherwise, I will get lost, quite frankly. Um, we talk a lot about supports, I know, with our students, but I really, this is the first time I've had, like, someone with me where I actually had support as I'm going through a degree. I did everything else by myself with my parents supporting me, but like I think the closest I lived to them through my education was maybe five hours away. Like my husband is my husband, he's in home with me. And so like I know I would not be able to handle full-time work, full-time PhD if I didn't have him kind of in the background. Um, like he, cause I have evening classes, like where I'm like tonight, I'm not going to get home to probably about nine o'clock from my studio class. And, um, so I'm not gonna have time to make dinner for tomorrow. Right. Uh, and so he'll have dinner, uh, and lunch prepared so I can just pack it for tomorrow, um, which his support in alone has been really helpful. And then I think it's blocking out different times. Like there's, um, Wednesday morning is for my job job. Thursday night, I do certain assignments. The weekend is, you know, depending on which day it's split between certain things. And so that's forced me to be more efficient with my time, but also um, if this is the time I've allotted for this task. And so therefore I'm not like, okay, what, what should I do now? Like today is a homework day. Today is a get your, your lectures done day. And that's been really helpful. And then like sprinkling in, you know, this hour is the time that I go and take the, the fluffy doggy around the, the block, or I'm allowed to go and, you know, take care of my garden right now. And so I think that's been my big thing. And then um, the big advice I got yesterday from someone else who's been through it recently, she just kept saying, just make sure you're getting sleep. And so on that advice, I went to bed really early and I feel much better this morning. <laughs> well, that just shows how um, such a strong support system is really crucial with maintaining mm -hmm. that um, work, school, life balance. Um, yeah. I, oh, sorry. I'm sorry, I just thought something else too. It's like also, um, which is really hard for me. And so I'm saying this out loud, knowing the people who might be listening to this who know me are going to laugh hysterically, knowing when to say no. <laughs> like I'm realizing right now, I don't have to do everything that this, and I've, I should know this, like I've been a clinician for over a decade, like opportunities come and go, but the right opportunities will be there at the time. That's the right time for you to have it. And just because it looks shiny at the time doesn't mean it's necessarily the one that you should be doing. So there's things that you have to say yes to because you know big picture, it's the right thing to do. But then there's times where it's like, you know what, like I don't have to pick up this one clinical job at the moment. There'll be another one in a couple of months or I don't, if it means I don't go to a certain party or a baby shower or a wedding, like it might not be another one for that particular person. I can send my gift and my, my congratulations, but there's gonna be plenty of other of those opportunities and it helps them an introvert too. So I don't actually don't mind not doing some of it, but, um, and also just knowing that there's a season and time for everything. Um, like I might not go up this year with the string band. I haven't decided yet, but it's a lot of time that I might not have. Well, there's always next year or in a couple of years, I can just, they'll still be there hopefully, or you know, they would still be there. Um, and so just knowing that there's seasons and times in life and that you need to do what you need to do at that moment in time and it's gonna be okay. I think that's a hard, it's a perspective that I think people, you gain with time and experience. 
Yeah, that's really true. And I think as OTs, we are always like trying to help people. So, or, and you, you want to be there for people. So I think like um, wanting to be there for those moments and like help take on like different responsibilities to help other people is just <laughs> something that comes with being an OT, which is um, funny. And I know I, I find, I, I think it's challenging to also say no, mm-hmm. um, but kind of we're sketch, switching gears now. So um, in terms of like geriatrics, why did you really choose to specialize in that population? Hmm. Oh gosh. I think it was just when I was working, I did a field work too within um, like geriatric house calls. And I'd come off of a placement that was the one that I thought I wanted to do more than anything. It turned out to be traumatic brain injury because I had kind of switched gears at one point in school. I thought I really wanted to do TBI, um, which I still love to this day. Um, but the this, the route, the schedule and everything that was going on at the hospital, like it was just something my, I physically, my body just couldn't handle. Um, Cause I just have some health concerns that I have to take care of. But I remember coming home from Fieldwick and, you know, my mama got home and I was just chit chatting about my day. And, and she mentioned to me that I had so much more joy in my voice when I was coming home from that place with older adults. And so when I started thinking about it, I realized that I really did. I looked forward to going to field work that day. Um, and to this day, like I look forward to going and seeing my clients. I guess some of it is that it matches my, the way I use myself therapeutically. I love the, you know, stereotypical grunt, grouchy old man who's going to sass me to death for an hour. I'm like, and then we have a sass fest and it, it's amazing. And I love it. Um, and we just laugh the entire time, but we get good work done. And I also love our, our sweet, you know, stereotypical sweet little old ladies who just, you know, treat you like one of their grandkids. And I think for me, it's like a respect for my elders type thing. Um, not that people don't have respect for their elders in other areas of practice, but for me, I just, I, don't, I just love them so deeply because I really believe that they are disenfranchised. There's a lot of ageism, a lot of people who say, well, they can't do that because they're 96. And I, my comment is, so what? So what if they're 96? Um, don't they have a right to live their, their life the entire way through is with dignity and as independent as possible? And I love the stories. I love the history um, that they bring, just the, the personality and the perspective often too. And I don't know, it just, it, it brings a lot of joy. I just, I, I just, I don't even know how to put it. I guess it's just so, um, it's hard to put into words how, why I chose them, but. I really love being the person who can bring some of that back to their life when everyone else is just saying, well, you're just old. And I'm like, but it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, I agree that being able to truly enjoy what you're doing makes work all like the worthwhile. And it's clear that you respect and care about the geriatric population a lot. Um, going off of that, can you tell us a little bit about the certifications you have related to this population? I have my eye on the BCG, the board certification in gerontology. Um, that is a problem for another day. That sort of opportunity will be there when I'm done with everything else. So think of like pacing myself. Um, but in terms of the other ones, most of my certifications are in aging in place at so the clip um, is living in place, which is a little bit more lifespan with um, home design and modifications, the certified aging in place from CAPS. Um, the SCEM is also a lifespan. It's just really denoting that I'm considered an expert in environmental modifications, but I built my portfolio around my experience in geriatrics. 
And so I've kind of, I consider it my subspecialty. Um, I don't have like any special particular like letters after my name for um, what I know to do for people with dementia, but I have just so much experience in it and have done some research to support it. And then I have like an LSVT big certification, which I know is Parkinson's disease, but it was a huge part of my practice and people age with Parkinson's. Um, and so I have all these little tidbits, things that were meant to give me more information so that I could deliver better interventions, I think was the whole point. Um, and why I have the letters that I have behind my name. It's like, okay, I'm missing a piece of information. I want to know what's best practice. I want to know more. Is there some advanced skills that I can develop? And then you go and take some courses on it. And then they, you get some more um, you know, letters behind your name and things like that. Um, so that's what a lot of those are. Gotcha. <clears throat> that's so cool. Uh, are you able to tell us about uh, the experience that you have like with home modifications for older adults? Uh, yeah, what specifically would you like to know about that one? Um, maybe like some of like the most common tips that you could give. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess with my work with Habitat for Humanity, I've been doing the Capable program, which has been amazing. Uh, we've been piloting to see if it would be a viable model for um, Habitat Philadelphia um, for their aging in place division, because they were kind of had a small like repair program, uh, a, lot of, a lot of Habitat affiliates do, but then the Capable program brings so much more with the nurse and the OT and um, just that those six, or I guess 10 visits total when you count up the two of us together. Um, and so some of, I think, oh gosh, I give out so many bed rails right now. Lots and lots of bed rails. Everyone's beds are way too high, if nothing else. Like everyone's pole vaulting into them. And that's just the way the beds are being designed right now. Uh, I also noticed that a lot of people just don't have enough lighting. And as we get older, we need much more light to be able to see. I think it's like 20% more light than like what you and I can see. And actually y'all can probably see more with less light than I can at this point. Um, I'm, I'm guessing I'm a little bit older than you are. Um, and so but it, it creeps up on people. People don't realize how dim their rooms really are. And then we all have various levels of sensitivity to light. And so I have been giving out a recommending puck lights that you can just attach to the wall with like a 3M sticker, basically. Um, mostly over stairs, especially down to the basement. There's never enough light with that. And then they say, I can't see the stairs because like, it's like practically dark. Like I can't see the stairs either. Um, and it's not safe for you to go downstairs and then turn on the light kind of defeats the purpose. Um, a lot of night lights to light the way to the bathroom because they come in different colors. Um, so it doesn't have to be so harsh in the middle of the night and wake you up. So definitely a lot of lighting, a lot of grab bars, especially um, all of them, but people already have them in their bathroom. So I've been like just reorienting them to be more efficient, but actually been putting in a lot of bars um, by people's front doors that look just like, we usually choose like a black bar or something that doesn't stick out so people don't really realize what it is. And lots of railings, like second railings on stairs, um, like interior stairs, railings on the outside to help them get up, um, stoops to get into the house. I've been doing a lot of that. And then it, a lot of my work has just been general home safety as well, like just picking up on trip hazards and things that aren't quite repaired. Um, someone was like, I don't understand why my hip hurts all the time. Like, cause we basically had a body slam your front door shut. 
Um, that was the only way that we could close. It's like, I have a, I'm willing to bet that has something to do with why your hip hurts or like organizational systems to help with energy conservation because um, they've been moving everything down so they can get to it, but then there's not enough space to put all the pots and pans because everything used to be tiered in their cabinets and then trying to figure out better systems of organizing their stuff. Um, so that's like, in a nutshell, I mean, I could, I put together like a four hour presentation for the Pennsylvania PT Association just on like aging in place and a good like hour and a half of it's just like a drop in the bucket of the stuff you can do. Um, but it's important to also note that aging in place is more than just the home modifications. It's also, we're, we're realizing more and more it's about the community and social supports and social services and um, making sure people can go out and be with community groups that they have access to grocery stores and physician's offices and green space and um, other basically services that help us maintain our quality of life much longer. So it's actually a much bigger conversation than just what's inside the home. And I know you mentioned the dementia population. Was that your main motivation to specialize in home design or what else motivated you to specialize in home design? Um, this is definitely a, a special subset of design options for that population that I find very interesting. Um, but I think, honestly, it was just general safety. I was working in people's homes and assisted living facilities that, to in their defense, were older, so not necessarily ADA because they didn't have to be at the time. But I just remember um, these marble thresholds that the only way people could get into them was to take a running start backwards in their wheelchairs. So you can imagine how many accidents we saw just because this marble threshold was there. And like, it doesn't have to be this gigantic marble threshold or these accordion doors that we would just take off of these bathroom um, suites because no one could open them and people were falling or um, a little, one of the little hundred year old um, residents who I think she was so small that she probably reached only like the second row of the four rows of mailboxes. And so she had a, her back scratcher and she would have to reach because she had the tallest one in the corner and would refuse help um, every time we offered to help her and would take her back scratcher to get her mail out or someone whose door back door opened up to the fridge. And so they had to have a whole system to make sure that no one was standing behind the door getting something out of the fridge if someone wanted to come in that door like a whole knocking system. And so it was things like that, um, very easily preventable type things that I realized we can do better. We can, we can work smarter than this. Um, and I've been pleasantly surprised to learn um, over time, just like how much is also that conversation in the built environment world. Cause they also recognize that a lot of what was being done mid-century was not necessarily the best because it was what we called Peter Pan homes that people were not supposed to get old. No one thought about that. Um, and so they're also trying to um, do better. And then I see an opportunity for to bring the best of what I know and the best of what they know together um, so that we can actually really do what we mean to do. Because we definitely, we know very specific things and we can't do it by ourselves. It's a joint effort. I know that you previously mentioned that like the community also plays a big role in aging in place, uh, mm -hmm. but what information could you share about lighting in regards to home modifications? The lighting? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very specific to the person. Very, very specific. Um, if they have any kind of eye condition, like cataracts or glaucoma, um, those types of things, they're gonna be able to tolerate 
different things, um, different amounts of light. Um, they will also be able to pref also prefer different levels of life, like tasks versus ambient light, et cetera. Um, so people who I know who work specifically in low vision and lighting, they usually carry around bags and bags of light bulbs to find out what you like. Um, also the different kinds of light bulbs make a difference. Like they have different refresh rates, LEDs versus fluorescence versus incandescence. Like there's actually um, a different quality of light and a different flicker basically that you can see. Like I can't tolerate LEDs hardly at all. Um, I also cannot tolerate fluorescence, not at one bit. I cannot stand fluorescence because I'm very sensitive to that flicker rate. Um, it is nice for them to be dimmable because then people can, uh, choose what works for them at that moment in time, keeping in mind that it depends on the time of day, depends on what's going on. If you have migraines, like everything, anyone's had, a, unfortunately had a migraine knows that sometimes you're fine. Sometimes when you have a migraine, you really just want that dark room. Um, and so dimmable lights are really nice for that. And so the smart lights have been really interesting in terms of opportunities to change the color of the light, uh, make it a little bit warmer or cooler, like a, a reddish color or a bluish color, not like the pink and green and blue, which you can totally do too, but that that's just more of a party light in my opinion. Um, but also to change like the dimmable and brightness um, factor just in one bulb so you don't have to have a million bulbs or special outlets or special um, light switches to do it. Um, so that's been kind of a neat opportunity for us. And then just paying attention to what we call the Kelvins and the Lumens when you're buying puck lights. So like, yeah, I'm talking about puck lights and there's a whole bunch of them. But when I actually choose one out for someone, I'm thinking about like, where is it going? When are they going to be using it? And therefore, what parameters do I need to really look at in terms of um, the brightness, which is the lumens or the Kelvins, which is the actual color of the light. Um, and so I had, so there's definitely people who've gotten like a, a brighter light and a wider light in like a, you know, a round puck light because it's going in their stairwell. And I know full well that they're going to be doing that more during like the evening it doesn't matter if it, it's a little bit brighter because blue light tends to wake us up. The brighter lights wake us up slightly, but the same person might have the same puck light, but just in the warmer color with a slightly uh, not as bright color um, or I guess brightness lining the hallway to their bathroom because I, I know it's going to be in the middle of the night. I want it to light their way, but I also don't want them to wake them up so much they can't fall back asleep. And so there's like a lot of those kinds of considerations to take into um, effect. Plus also where you put them. Um, some of the staircases I've been seeing lately, the, the ceilings are so slanted a certain way that I have to figure out really like, okay, are we gonna put something on the ceiling? Or are we putting them along the stairs? So I don't want them to be blinded too as they come up the stairs because when you get older, depending on what you have going on with your eyes, that um, like that effect when a flash um, from a camera goes off in your eye, like that will hang around longer and then that's gonna impact their ability to see. So it might actually change where I put the light. So it's not annoying them. So that's like just a handful of the considerations that go into lighting. And um, there's many, many more and even probably some that I don't even know about because I'm, it's, it's like my new fascination. So I'm learning more and more about this entire world. And there's actually entire groups of people who are called lighting designers. This is what they do for a living. And they've been playing with lights to affect circadian rhythms on memory units and things like that. So I think that's pretty cool and something I want to personally learn more about. Well, that's really so interesting and important to consider when thinking about home modifications, especially related to light. Um, I think that uh, maintaining the idea that each person and their preferences um, with light really is different and that really goes back to the whole 
profession and the basis of OT, uh, like maintaining that holistic approach. I think that's really a great um, approach. So with that being said, we know that you've talked about how you believe that things kind of work out when and how they're supposed to. So um, how have your experiences throughout your career as an OT helped you to pursue your, pursue your PhD and like what kind of led you to do that right now, I guess? Oh my goodness. I, I think my entire career has been basically things working out the way that, that they're supposed to, even if I didn't think about it at the time. So I think a great, great example um, of that is my original Fieldwork 2 placements. I was supposed to go down to Georgia to do something in assistive tech and then come back to Philadelphia to do something on like residential brain injury. They both got canceled. And so I ended up going home to Texas um, and did my inpatient brain injury um, rotation there, which was amazing. But then I also learned what my body could and couldn't handle. But at the same time, I've learned so much that to this day, I feel like I'm still fairly proficient in that area of practice because it was just such an incredible placement. Um, but then the week before I was supposed to come back was when my other placement got canceled. And they were worried actually about me doing two brain injury ones. Um, but then some were like, well, I guess that worked out. Well, I guess the second placement that canceled last minute, like literally the week before I was coming back, happened to be the place I worked for for five and a half years. So like that was a great example of things working out exactly as it was supposed to and like putting me on a path um, that I was, I was going to go to. I remember looking at a university that was one of the few that was doing like the extra year and you could get your OTB at the time. Um, they were very, very rare back then, extremely rare. Um, and I got into it, but I was getting more, quite frankly, more money to go where I ended up choosing like scholarship wise. I mean, it makes a difference. Um, and so I chose to go where, you know, logistically it made more sense for me. And I think that also ended up op opening up other opportunities because I think if I had carried all the way through, I'm not sure I would have ended up doing home modifications because I wouldn't have known how much I loved it. And so when I decided to go and get my OTD, um, and it was definitely a very, both my doctors have been very much whim decisions. Um, I woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to get my OTD and like applied and got in. And then it, it turned into the trajectory that I'm on now that opened doors that I didn't even know were possible. I thought I'd be someone with an OTD working in the field. And I ran into um, colleagues who worked uh, at the university and said, come do some guest lectures. Oh, by the way, there's a positioning, position opening. You should apply. I applied on a whim. <laughs> and now here I am, you know, with, I guess this my... I'm in my sixth year of teaching and I absolutely love it. I, I have a lot of tendencies just to do things on whims and then it happens. So I have to watch myself. Um, same thing, I woke up one morning and said, you know, hon, I think I'd like to get a PhD, but I don't want it to be an OT. And we were looking at different programs and a lot of the ones in architecture and design would have required me to move. And that's really wasn't an option. So I was like, well, what am I gonna do? Um, there was one that was online that ultimately actually ended up not accepting me. I didn't get into my, the other program I applied to. Um, and I got into, in Jefferson's program, I'm the first year of it. Like I woke up, I only, I think it was in my spam box, which I was checking because I was checking for some other email that someone said might've gone to spam that was really important for me to deal with when I was working still at, at Jefferson East Falls. And I went in there also and went, a PhD program in architecture, what's this? And it literally, it just showed up at the moment that it needed to for me to pull together an application, like kind of on the fly. Um, and so 
And um, I mean, it's even like as much as the pandemic's been a pain in the butt. Like I knew I had to start do my GREs again, which I was not looking forward to. I hadn't seen some of that math in decades, um, but I could take advantage of the um, all the things now to, to test at home, which actually was really quite nice. And so I guess it's just a lot of it's been just being open to the opportunities, talking to people, which I really actually honestly hate to do. I'm not much of a networker. I'm terrible at it. I hang out behind people who are better at it than me. Um, but just being open to opportunities, and I say yes more often than not, even though I talked about being about being good about saying no, I tend to say yes more often than not. Because if I hadn't said yes to that random offer to do a guest lecture, I wouldn't be sitting in the position I'm in now if I hadn't said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and just try for the doctorates. I would not be having earned one and getting another one and actually, you know, basically saying to people who are like, well, you know, why would an OT want this doctorate and being like, let me tell you why I need to be here. Um, so I'm not even sure if I've answered your question, quite frankly, but um, just, just everything about my career has been being at the right place at the right time. The habitat stuff actually is another funny example. I sat down next to someone at my CAPS training who happened to be the leader of the home repairs program at Bucks County, which is a little bit north of the city for those who aren't familiar with the Philadelphia area. We became good friends. I kept pestering her every summer. Um, you know, does she need any help with any projects? That's usually when they did their home repair stuff for older adults. And she would get some money. She would hire me. We would do some help. We had a student internship. It was great. She passed my name off to um, when she retired to someone else. But I remember hearing about the Capable program. I asked her about it because I didn't know where in Philly it was going to be. She connected me to the person doing it at Habitat Philly. I emailed her. She said, oh, this is the person at Jefferson who's running the OT department. It was my chair. And so I just barged into my chair's office and said, um, I hear you're doing capable. I hear you need an OT. Here I am. So it's just kind of like, I guess part of it is not so much um, you know, things falling into the right place, but also being aware of what's going on. Like at no point in time did I have like my head in the sand and not pay attention to what was going on on the outside. And then like not being afraid to just send that email, do that phone call, which for me is actually a lot of effort because of just who I am, believe it or not. I'm one of those extroverted introverts. Um, and so really just, and then believing, I guess, in yourself to be like, all right, I have no idea about what I'm getting myself into. I have no idea if I'm supposed to be doing this, but I'm just gonna go for it and see what happens. And then um, doing the best you can when it actually does happen. Thank you so much for sharing so much about your journey to becoming an OT and your different areas of expertise. And since we're still OT students ourselves, it's really refreshing to see how everything's worked out for you. And then also, you know, that you've been rewarded for taking those leaps of faith that you have. Um, overall, what's your favorite part of working as an OT? Oh, gosh. One of my friends asked me this recently, actually. <laughs> I had a hard time answering it, too, because... I really feel like it's almost like it's a calling. And one of the things I've been struggling with in my PhD, and luckily they've told me not to downplay the fact I am a clinician, because I feel like at this point, it's so ingrained in who I am that you can't separate out Monique as a person from Monique the OT anymore. Um, aside from the fact that, you know, Monique the OT really never gets grumpy, whereas Monique the person can get grumpy and like actually like be a full human being, you know, we stay within our therapeutic use of self, of course, as a clinician. 
Um, but I think for me, it's the little things. Like I can go in and I can do some really big changes to someone's home, or we could talk about really big changes to someone's life or do some really big interventions. I know they're going to be drastically life-changing. Like the big things tend to be, but it's when the person who I'm convinced is going to discharge me in like a week and I'm pretty good at guessing when someone's going to kick me out of a house and she keeps letting me come and I can't figure out why because she does not want me there and we actually figure out a way for her to put on her socks because that's the one thing she wanted to do more than anything or wash her face or when my client looks at me and goes you know I just realized that this is the first morning I woke up and I haven't been in as much pain as I always had been for years and that made a difference it's those small changes in the day that sometimes I think mean more than anything. And that's what I really, really love. Like every OT talks about the moment where their client breaks down crying over like a socket. And I can tell you, it's going to happen to each one of you too. And anyone else listening to this, like you're going to have the client who breaks down crying over the smallest thing. But it's the fact that those small things mean the most. Um, and I think my favorite part is that we're the ones who find possibility where everything else feels lost, where they feel like everyone else has abandoned them, that you know no one can help them. And we're the ones that say, we'll find a way. It might not be the same way, but we'll find a way. Um, and just to see how much that means to people, like that's, that's what I love most about our job. That honestly sounds so sweet. And sounds like uh, something to look forward to as a clinician. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, but now on the opposite end could you tell us about like a challenging experience you had working as a clinician and how you handled that situation mm. definitely I've had my few um I think for me the, the most challenging parts sometimes have not been so much working with my clients like eventually we can come to an, a, a place of agreement we can you know it takes time sometimes but we, we can definitely get there. Um, and sometimes it takes more patience than people realize. And I think that's a, a, always a good lesson for students to remember that sometimes some things just take time. People have been through a lot and you just have to be that steady presence no matter what. Usually it comes from caregivers um, in my experience, at least in my practice, my most challenging situations have been caregivers, um, unrealistic expectations. Um, I've been stuck in situations where I think they've been just, they've been mourning what's going on, um, honestly. Like, it's a lot for families. It's remember, important to remember that. And they just tell me like, well, it's not really dad's heart. It's just, it's his dementia. And I'm like, his blood pressure just dropped and he just passed out and I caught him and lowered him to the ground. It's his heart. Dementia doesn't do this. But you have to remember where people are coming from um, too, as you kind of like approach that subject. But I've been definitely stuck in situations where you know, people are fighting over my head, siblings are fighting, but then you become the scapegoat. Um, situations where um, someone was totally fine, like the, the son was totally fine with me until he realized that I was discharging dad because dad was doing great. And then I like, started yelling at me, called my boss. Like luckily I had intercepted um, him beforehand. Like I'd called my boss beforehand, like the second I got into the car um, to warn him about what was about to happen because it was actually not a, a pretty situation. Um, you know, there's, there's things like that. I, I can honestly say I've never really felt unsafe. I've never been in situations 
um, that I haven't been able to get myself out of because I'm always very cognizant of set, setting up an environment where I know I can get myself out of it. Um, I've been in situations where people very much really didn't want me there. Um, and it was just a very uncomfortable atmosphere. Like in that case, I remember just sitting down. I remember getting the client away from um, his caregiver and just saying, like, do you really want me here? Like, you do realize you have a choice. And that changed everything. Um, and he actually said, like, actually, honestly, no. Like, I can use all the stuff. Like, I don't even know why they keep sending people out. And I'm like, that's fair. You do have a choice. Let me educate you on the implications of your choice. But you do have a choice. And actually, honestly, he needed PT more than he needed me anyway. But the case where I was getting stuck with, uh, where the guy was about to call my boss and, like, yell, and it actually turned into, like, this whole big thing. Um, luckily, I had seen bits and pieces along the way. Um, and you learn in school to like manage conflict. It's not comfortable. Like I was usually pretty unhappy by the time I got to the car, but you hold it in and then you break down in the car, you know? Um, but I would call my boss. My boss knew hundred percent what was going on. Um, and so when he got that call, because I intercepted him beforehand, like he actually, he, I mean, he totally had my back and that, that for that, I'm very grateful to my boss. Um, but in that case, honestly, I had to swallow my, my pride to some extent. And even though I really truly had nothing to apologize for, um, I went in and I apologized for how I made the person feel. For that part, I can honestly say I was genuinely apologetic because I, my, my being there caused him to feel a certain way. My about to discharge dad caused him to feel a certain way. And so you, like that part, I don't want anyone to ever feel bad. Um, but then we also, I tried to engage in a constructive conversation about how we can make the last two weeks much more constructive for everybody. Um, I wish we could say it went really well. And sometimes you just have to acknowledge that, like, there's nothing I could really do in that situation. Like in two weeks, he caused a huge fuss, kicked me out, demanded another therapist because he knew he could get another month of therapy. Um, it ended up being a whole, whole shebang. Um, but I guess in terms of like all the situations that I've been in, I think the big key piece of advice was just remaining calm, not taking it personally, which is easier said than done, but eventually you build walls and you, when you get confident enough in your own skills, like I know that there was nothing, like it had nothing to do with me. And I can recognize that. And I could recognize it then. Didn't mean I like to deal with it, but I could recognize it. Um, and to try to redirect the conversation onto like constructive like, what are we going to work on with dad or mom or um, sometimes your siblings, sometimes it's, you know, brothers and sisters taking care of each other. And that usually can help. That deflects, I think, like 98% of the difficult situations that I have found myself in. Thank you for sharing those stories. It's good that you have to have a lot of patience and use your therapeutic use of self in those situations. Mm -hmm. And it's a nice reminder that especially in people's homes, the caregivers are just as much involved in the process as your actual client is. Um, yes, I think that's uh, the important part, like, too, like, I think when I, my approach when I'm in people's homes, too, is I'm very much aware I'm a guest in their home, and so I think having that kind of, like, like, maintaining that atmosphere and, like, and really, like, I really feel like it's an honor to be led in the front door. And I think that also tends to smooth over a lot of issues beforehand. Cause I'm not coming in going, are you going to do this? You're going to do that. You're going to do that. It's just more, it's like, oh, thank you so much for letting me be here. And, you know, it, when you approach things a certain way, um, it takes people off a defensive that they could be on immediately. And then it, it just sets you up for success from the start. Yes. And I agree. It's very personal going into 
someone else's home and having to do all your work in front of like their entire family. Yeah. And the dogs and the guests. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have any final advice for our listeners regarding their journeys becoming licensed clinicians or people that are currently practicing? Hmm. I guess, um, I guess for the, the people who are on their journey, um, and we talk a lot about trusting the process in school um, and going through a similar process now, I'm very much reminded of that. You know, our brains are muscles and we have to exercise them. And we only, we learn through those uncomfortable moments. We learn through the times where your brain just feels like it's being stretched and you're exhausted and you just think, oh my God, I'm not really even supposed to be here. And that's not true by any stretch of the imagination. Um, And so I think it's just important to remember to persevere, to keep going, um, that you are supposed to be be there. Um, Because if you have the passion and the drive to be in OT school in the first place, then you're absolutely 100% in the right spot. And that eventually everything that seems really difficult to you now is going to be complete second nature to the point where you can just honestly do it in your sleep and you'll laugh looking back thinking why did I ever think that this was so difficult Um, and then I guess my next piece of advice for people both clinicians in the field and and for students is um, to not be afraid to just keep branching out I I think one of the reasons why I have accumulated the experiences that I have like I'm kind of like venturing off into lighting right and like I've been learning more about vision rehab for a variety of reasons Um, it's okay to chase the shiny things uh, now I'm a bit of a nerd. I love collecting all these big pieces of knowledge because the thing is you never know when it's going to come in handy. Will it ever help me win Jeopardy? Probably not. Um, unless it's like an OT Jeopardy and that would be amazing. But at the same time, I think you never know when that client's going to come through who has that condition that no one knows what to do with. And that random little shiny thing that you collected because it looked cool at the time ends up um, being the thing that helps them out the most. So um, don't be afraid to just, you know, follow whatever looks cool at the moment. Um, try at the same time to try to keep the, the bigger picture. Like don't get so overwhelmed with, um, things that you don't have the bandwidth, but it's okay to take those courses that are completely off the wall and different. Like that's one of my favorite things to do at conference. I, I do the things that I know I need to do either for, um, teaching my courses or for my own practice. And then I find something that there's no good reason why I should be in that session. Like nothing about it says anything about what my career actually is, but those are the things that are the most fascinating. And so that's, I guess, a challenge I would have for anyone who just is at like students and for clinicians. That's how I learned about how they fit power wheelchairs into airplanes at the Chicago airport. I had no idea about any of that. I'm like, well, that looks interesting. So try to learn something new about something that you never would have done any other way. Um, and you just, and you never know when it'll come in handy, I guess is the thing. Wow, I think um, that point of uh, like kind of stepping out of your comfort zone is just really like great in all aspects of life, especially as a future and um, new clinician. So I think that's a great note to end on. Um, We just wanted to know if listeners would like to reach out to you for any additional questions or information. um, What's the best way for them to reach you? Um, Probably my email is fine. Okay, great. Much more 
responsive on email than anything else. Okay, awesome. awesome. I think most of us are. Um, yeah. But we'll be sure to include that um, in the description then for this. Um, and then just in general, we wanted to thank you so much for being so open with us throughout the course of this podcast. I know it's really helped the rest of us here at Charge be more open to new possibilities as clinicians in our future professions. So thanks again for that. Um, and then uh, in closing, uh, we wanted to really thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope our listeners appreciated learning about your experiences working with the geriatrics population, living in place and, and design, as well as all your other uh, experiences with dementia and everything else you mentioned today. Um, Monique can be reached uh, through her email at Mo uh m-o-o i'm sorry m-o-c-c-h-a-b-o-t at yahoo.com if you want to learn more about charge therapy we can be found at our website chargetherapy.com c-h-r-g charge the word therapy.com or you can find us on our instagram at charge therapy and on facebook at students in charge for more tips and tricks Charge therapy provides ergonomic adjustments and home modifications through both telehealth and in-person. Check us out and contact us if you would like to learn more. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day.